Hello, welcome to the Readings Podcast. I'm Robbie Egan, and today I have the pleasure of introducing to you Jennifer Egan, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning A Visit from the Goon Squad, and more recently, The Brilliant Manhattan Beach. Thank you very much for coming and speaking with us. It's uh, terrific to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I too am an Egan, so there's an, you know, an Egan on Egan chat, which I think is very nice. So thought that was... I think that's a first for me. Uh, good. Well, I'm always <laughs> happy to be a first. So thanks for joining us. Um, I'm a bit of a fan, as you can see. You just signed some old editions of your books for me, so thank you for that. Um, going straight into it, one of the things I love about your writing is the depiction of interior life and the way people sort of synaptically flash between this person's nice, oh, this is dangerous, this is bad, this is good. Is that something that you're trying to write about? Because it seems to me a very accurate depiction of what living really is like. I love that you mention interior life because I feel like that's, I mean, that is kind of my biggest goal, I would say. I just feel like that's really the thing that fiction can do that nothing else can do. You know, anything that's uh, image-based, let's say, is, is inherently... Oh, like yeah, yeah, or... Um, you know what my kids watch constantly, which are YouTube videos. You know, you're coming at people from the outside and sort of intuiting whatever you get about their interior life from a surface. So that's the thing that seems like the the secret weapon of fiction. Um, the thing that it really does is it kind of lets the reader crawl through the consciousness of another person. And so there are a few things I think about when I'm. Uh, you know, I write very instinctively, I should just say. So I, I, when I, I, I can't even really say when... I was about to say when I create a character, but it never really feels that way. Um, but I'm always looking for people's habits of mind, kind of the way they organize reality that's specific to them. So I think maybe that speaks to what you were saying about just the sort of the way that um, a mind might jump from one thing to the other, um, and also the ways that people contradict themselves in their thoughts and behavior, those things really, really interest me, and I'm always trying to push toward that in each person I write about. Right, well, that's exactly what I was getting at. To be honest, um, if I think of Dexter Stiles or Anna or Eddie, they're sort of the key characters. They're constantly wrestling with self-doubt, so self-doubt is, I think, a constant throughout your books as well. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess what, what I'm always interested in is the way, I mean, you know, of course we all experience self-doubt, and in a certain sense we all are the opposite of ourselves in the sense that, you know, most qualities um, have advantages and disadvantages that are both very alive in people's lives. So just to give you a specific example, Dexter Styles is a kind of a mob boss. He's a gangster, and we see him at work, like in his workplace doing his work. He's a murderer um, and a very um, imposing figure. He's physically very big, and people pay him a lot of respect. And he's... he. Um, he's sort of knowing about the world, at least he thinks he is, um, in the sense that he kind of gets the, um, the, the bloody underpinnings, the power relations that are, he thinks of it as being close to the earth, that's how he describes himself. At the same time, he's actually very naive um, about certain things. He, he, he thinks that he is more um, nefarious and more kind of, dark than than other people and that turns out not to be true and he's also quite a feminist which is another sort of odd just unexpected thing about him so it's in order for a character to be interesting for me to write about 
I'm looking for the ways that they sort of don't add up. You know, the consistent character is is an, an absolutely the Quite kiss dull. of it's yeah. the kiss of death in fiction. But not just because it's dull to read about someone who's consistent, but it, it's not how we really are. We're very contradictory creatures. And in fact, in, through the writing process, one thing I'm always pushing for is once I've established something about someone, I am not interested in seeing that anymore. I feel like we've, we've seen it, we know it's there, now it's time to react against it and do something different. So that's there's almost a dialectical quality um, that I'm going for as we move through a person's life and a person's mind. Well, an aspect of that, that self-doubt is striving, and it's a, certainly Manhattan Beach is a novel about striving, people trying to either get power or change their status in some way. Dexter's trying to become legitimate, and he thinks he can, and he has no place in the world of banking, and it's not going to happen. I think we worked that out pretty early, but it's fun to watch him struggle with that. Um, is that something you're searching to push through as well? Well, I America's think... a place of striving, for example, and the book is about the war in America entering the world. So the characters and the book are about that, I think. Am I onto something? Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking very specifically about the trajectory of American power before I started this. And I think one thing that led me to think about it was 9-11, which first of all turned New York into a war zone overnight, which was very shocking. But, all, but on a deeper level, it felt like a real event in the story of American global power. And that led me to think about when that power first really coalesced and what that felt like. So in a certain sense that, you know, I mean, American striving is something that has always interested me. I've looked at it often from the from the standpoint of American self-invention, because I think that's a very big part of the American psyche and often... American striving takes the form of almost literally wanting to become a different person. Um, it's like the opposite of the sort of the, the class system in Britain where the idea is you're born as this and in a certain sense you will never escape that no matter what you do. Th that, there's an opposite mentality in America, which is, you know, I, I was born as this and goodbye. I don't ever want to look at that again. But I think in this book what I found myself thinking about more as I looked at some of the um, kind of the earlier iterations of, of the of sort of Americanness. Um, was the violence that underlies a lot of our culture right from the beginning and, and all the way through. Um, I mean, in a certain sense, Donald Trump is the most recent embodiment of that kind of violent ideal. Um, it, it, the, the American who says, I'm going to do this, get out of the way. It's just another version of that self-invention, but it has a very tough edge to it. Um, and it's very appealing to a lot of Americans, as we've seen. That, that's a selfish version of it. Mm. Extremely selfish. Very. But uh, the, Ayn Randian or something. You know? Yeah, that's true. But, you know, the, the, the um, self-invention, I think, sometimes can have a sort of... It, there's an inherently selfish aspect to that. Which is, you know, I, I, what really matters is my transformation, not whatever group I was originally part of. We're moving towards that, or we're already there with social media and things like that in terms of building personal profiles, and it's nothing that you and I would have ever done as kids, not in, in the way that it's done now. You write a lot about that. Um, what's your thoughts on social media and perhaps as a journalist, old media versus new? 
fake news, real news. Well, that's Where a huge we, topic. So well, give us a couple of minutes. Um, all right. I mean, I think that, first of all, I should just preface it by saying I'm, I am always aware of the fact that this is, my answer is going to be generationally based in that I grew up without any of this. I mean, I grew up without an answering machine. So I really came of age at a different time. And there's such a tendency to think that the world I grew up in is the better world. And I used to listen to that from my grandparents and I had no interest. So I'm going to be a little careful of that. I think that, I mean, the, the wonderful thing about social media is that there, we are human beings and we seek connection to other human beings and it's thrilling to have that wish granted. Just as one example, I've, I've been in touch with three friends that I haven't seen in 30 years and have seen two of them in Australia. The third isn't here, um, so, but we're reconnected and that really would have been impossible without Facebook. So I'm so grateful. Like It led me to, to have physical you know, a, a meal with friends and reminisce that was fantastic. The negative side that I see, I mean, there are a couple of things. One is very hard to achieve solitude. Um, and speaking personally, solitude has been crucial to most of my big life decisions. And most importantly, the decision to become a writer. I mean, I was traveling alone. I was in a state of alienation. It was beyond solitude. I was sort of flipping out in my solitude. But it was, you know, one's own company can be very important. And I think that it's hard to to get to that nowadays. And I say that as someone who even grew out, uh, grew up without these technologies. I look at my kids and I think, do you ever actually feel like you're alone? I'm not sure. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, I, you know, something I've had my eye on in, through all of my work is the kind of, um, it's not exactly narcissism, but the, the, um, the pressure to self-market that is inherent in a lot of social media. Um, you know, in a certain sense, you are making a product out of yourself and your life. And the way I use social media is, is blatantly... Um, you know, connected to that side of it, which is I'm just trying to get people to come to my events and buy my books. I don't really use it for much more than that. So it is, it's, you know, blatantly self-promotional. But even the sort of I'm having fun on my vacation posts, there's something about packaging one's experience as one's having it that I think is just kind of fascinating um, from a writerly standpoint, but also... Mm a little bit strange and, and new. I find it leads to a nostalgia for what you're doing. You're almost reminiscing as you're going through it. This is going to look great. I mean, right. just do it. The experience is kind of lost in a way. Well, but that's an extreme negative. I mean, well, also, you know, I, I, I mean, that's where, I mean, I, I agree with you. Um, and not just because we're both Egan's, um, but because, um, but I also feel like I almost hear my kids saying, well, who are you to tell me that I'm missing out on something when I'm having a great time taking pictures of my experience? <laughs> and that's perfectly Which is valid, legitimate. That's right, yeah. Um, social media was in Goon Squad quite a bit, and you kind of leapt into the future. I, I got a bit obsessed with Black Box when that was first published, and you did that on a social media platform, didn't you? That was a Twitter story, is that right? Yes. I well, didn't read it. I read it in the New Yorker. Yeah, I did not tweet it. The New Yorker tweeted it. Oh, um, I see. They, it, they, it was, it, they did it in a really fun way. It was over eight days, an hour a night. 
So it was sort of a serial, it was serialized fiction, um, which yeah, was... Very Dickensian of you. It, well, that was the idea, <laughs> although it's interesting. I thought it worked really well that way because I love just watching these, these um, small structural units float onto my phone. But what I was told by people who had a more active Twitter life and were following many, many people and institutions is that having these relatively occasional bulletins one a minute appearing amidst all of this other cacophony was a, was not a good way to read fiction. And from their point of view, it was unsuccessful as a Twitter event. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Um, but I was pleased um, because, you know, in my, in my sort of small Twitter, um, yeah, Twitter uh, universe, it. it was Twitter's just, stupid. it kind of had, the, it was fun to, to see it. I mean, I'm very interested in serialized fiction and it was fun to try it that way. Yeah, okay. Well, I am. Um, I just loved it as a story. It's you're pushing into what people call speculative fiction or science fiction. Well, forget the label. Is there a chance that you might push into that realm because you seem to write very perceptively about the near future? Well, I never it's never exactly I never decide to do that per se. I seem to always end up there um, for other reasons. And really, in a way, the same reason for both the last chapter of Goon Squad and Black Box, which is that I'm using characters from Goon Squad that I couldn't um, view at a later phase of their lives without pushing into the future because it's very well established what what age they are yeah. in the book. So, um, But what I've found every time is that there are so many advantages to writing into the future, and especially in Black Box, because I've got a... Um, you know, a woman who's posing as a sort of, I mean, she's essentially a prost posing as a prostitute. She's one of many kind of beautiful women hanging out with these sort of powerful men who uh, the American government believes are in some way conspiring against America. And I wanted her to be able to record conversations and, you know, basically do her job, but it was inconceivable that she would be able to carry all of this equipment with her. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute, we're in the 2030s. It's all inside her body. And that was, I don't know how I could have actually written about her doing that job if I hadn't had that option. So it yeah. was, it was kind of convenient. She's like an augmented superwoman. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. And that was really fun. And you called well, all the women who were doing this beauties, which was an interesting way of naming them. Yeah. And that well, pushes right through it till the end, yeah. And then another thing that I really wasn't expecting was that, well, I should just say that the way the story is written, um, I was trying to find a, a, a mode of storytelling that would require these very short structural units because I didn't want to just chop up a story and have it be tweeted. Was that when it was 140? Yeah, it was 140. It's very short, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think that story would have worked as well with the current um, Twitter accommodation. Uh, well, it yeah. I don't think it would have worked, actually. I really don't. It's too long. I would have had to keep it short anyway. Um, but anyway, so I ended up using a list form because I and, and what what is being listed is each thing that the protagonist learns from what happens to her or what she does. So in other words, nothing is narrated directly and the word I never appears. Second person, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It was, to the extent that it even used that, because more often there was no, I mean, she's just saying, um, observing things about the world. Um, 
And so that was really a surprising um, kind of fun development that I um, I would never have expected. But the, the form of Twitter kind of invited me to look for ways to tell a story that would require those structural units. Yeah, have some coffee. It, it reminded me of a, a book called Mariette in Ecstasy by a guy named Ron Hansen. I love that book. That book. I just, I got obsessed with that too when I was younger. It was just mind-blowing. And I didn't love his other books, to be honest, but that was just perfect. I agree totally. Yeah, you had read it. Oh, yeah. I love that book. And it's funny because I recommended that book to a lot of people and I found that some of them really didn't understand why I loved it so much. But I thought it was just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is a polarizing one. You either (laughs) love it or you you just think, what is this? Exactly. It's not worth my time kind of thing. Um, well, time is obviously a, a big deal in the Green Squad. That's, the title is about that. Um, thinking more broadly about that, would you think about taking the characters and projecting forwards in another book? I did read something about you. You talked about it in an interview somewhere, but is that something you I'm might... really hoping that will be my next book. I'm hoping Black Box will be part of that book. The question is, can I really do a good job? Because what I don't want is to write a kind of weaker echo of Goon Squad. And I think I will, you know, I think it will be met with derision if that happens. So the question is, can I take some of the same structural approaches? Namely, each chapter is about a different person. Each chapter is written in a way that's technically different from all of the others. And each chapter stands on its own. And can I write a book that is, you know, has power of its own that is not about time and not about music? Those are the requirements. And I'm, I'm working on it. Shift away from you know, yeah, I can't those have any... key elements, but yeah. the same structurally you're talking about. Oh, yes. Please do that. I'm trying. That would be so amazing. I'm, I'm kind of excited about the idea. I mean, okay. I, I definitely feel like there's some material in there that... But it doesn't always go to the future, either. Because I'm, I'm willing to follow characters in any direction. Um, but they're very, all peripheral. Just as the protagonist of um, Black Box is a very peripheral character in Goon Squad, Lulu. I couldn't remember who it was in the book, to be honest. Because she's Cause so I, peripheral. I re- read it again last night and I was thinking, <laughs> didn't make sense, yeah. Uh, as in, I couldn't work out who it was. The, the story made perfect sense. Um, well, in terms of themes, we talked about time. What about water? That's massive in Manhattan Beach, and again, it's pretty overt, um, but is that a vestigial thing? We're all immersed in it when we're born, we, you know, water is a, a thing for us, or um, am, I, am I getting too carried away? I'm not so into womb, womb, the womb-like, <laughs> um, you know, aspect of water, although I think it's totally legitimate. I mean, I, I should say that I've, I mean, water actually plays a big part in all of my books, even in Goon Squad. I mean, a character well, drowns. He kills himself, doesn't he? he drowns, well, he's, I don't think it was intentional, but yeah. Oh. So, um, yes, so I, and, and that probably is the book in which water is the least important of all of them. So there's a lot of water. I think a lot of it has to do with, honestly, just my, uh, the landscapes I grew up in. You know, Chicago is spread out along Lake Michigan, and San Francisco, because of all the hills, is you one feels all the time aware of the water um, because of you're just you know always elevated so often elevated and seeing it out at the edges. But really, I think what what led I mean I bumbled into the um, 
the kind of water saturation of Manhattan Beach, starting with just looking at images of New York during World War II and seeing how much of the um, the kind of center of gravity of the city was at the edges. You know, that's where people, uh, that's how people got on the ferries and boats that took them all kinds of distances. And it was also how goods and services, you know, how goods were transported. So I started thinking a lot about New York as a port. And then that led me to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which was a hugely important shipyard um, among the Allies during the war. It was actually the largest builder and repairer of Allied ships in the world. Um, and then the Navy Yard led me to deep sea diving, which was a feature of ship repair. Um, and then ultimately, I found myself out at sea with the Merchant Marine. So I think it was just it. it I, I think for one thing. You know, the the war years were the last years before air travel became commonplace. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, it was the last time that humans had a certain kind of relationship to the sea that we really don't have anymore. I mean, we look out the window of a plane and glance at the sea, but the bottom line is, I got to Australia in 20 hours. That kind of seems like a long time, but not if you think about how long it would have been by ship. <laughs> No, no, not if you're storing food for several months. And gasoline and all of it. That would be very fun. So yeah. that, so in a way it was, it, I felt like it was um, kind of a, a way of, of not remembering, because I've never experienced it, but, but sort of relishing that relationship to space that, that human beings had before air travel was so ubiquitous. And the other thing about writing about the sea that's so satisfying is that it's always both a metaphor and an actual thing. I mean, let the language of, of sail and the sea um, permeates our speech, even without our realizing it. Um, and so, you know, there, there's something very satisfying about being in a realm that's very physical, and in fact, in this book, so technical. I mean, I get a lot into the techniques, some, some have said too much, into the mechanics of deep sea diving and merchant sailing on Liberty ships. But at the same time, the sea itself is this kind of amorphous, elastic, deeply metaphorical body. And so I loved being in both those realms at once. Okay. I'm not quite sure how to phrase this. Um, I don't want to labour on your research, because a lot's been written about that, and you've talked a lot about it, but it's undoubtedly a heavily researched book, Manhattan Beach. It's very accurate why so deep? Why did you get into that rabbit hole? It didn't bother me. I love people like Jim Shepard and people are famous for their research. So, Well, I, explain a little bit what you mean by rabbit hole. Do you mean why it, are there so many mechanics in the book? Mm, no, but I know that apparently you started this book over a decade ago and Goons God came out while you were still working on it. That's what I understand. That's a long time to spend kind of getting it right. Well, that's not completely accurate in okay. that I was doing research for this book in uh, from 2005 to 2010 while writing other books. I wasn't writing this book. Oh, right. I, hadn't, okay. I didn't put pen to paper until 2012. But I was starting to just um, immerse myself when I had time in some of the worlds of the book. And frankly, the number one reason I was doing that was that it, the people who remember that time are, are passing away very constantly. I mean, so I got involved in an oral history project to interview people who had worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard during and after the war. 
And we interviewed maybe 20, 25 women who had worked there, all of whom were in their 80s, sometimes their late 80s, before 2010. So there was no way to wait. I mean, that was the time. <laughs> right, it was um, just an imperative. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I feel so, I mean, I had big doubts about whether I would ever actually write a book about that time, but I would tell myself, you know what? Whatever happens, this is time well spent because I'm participating in creating, in adding to the historical record with stories that are really important. And any elderly New Yorker I heard of who had a really good memory, I would track them down, get in touch, record their memories and so that was part of it was just feeling like it's true that I don't have time to work on this yet but I also cannot wait um, and then so by the time I started writing then I had finished Goon Squad and it had come out and it took me from start to finish of the writing part which also by the way involved constant research it's not like I stopped researching um, that was five years that's actually not that long for me <laughs> I mean, I wish it were otherwise, but yeah, right. it's well, normal. <laughs> you also write by hand, don't you? I do. That does slow it down a little bit. Oh, yes. It, it really does. But it's the only way I can do good work. I can't. I mean, as a journalist, mm -hmm. I write completely on a computer. But for fiction, I can't. My, I have to, I'm trying to get deeper than my conscious mind. And I can only do that by handwriting. Oh, that's interesting. Fiction, handwriting, nonfiction computer. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, one thing I loved about the book and I, I love about all good historical fiction is that we're always in modern times. Whenever you're alive, it's the modern time. It has to be. So I love reading about people who feel that kind of surge of excitement, even though it's 70 years ago. Is that something you thought about while you were writing? Um, you mean, in other words, they see their times yeah, as modern. Yeah, they're excited about you know what, what the explosion right. of America onto the world or the new technologies or women getting more agency. All those kind of things really energise people back then. And if you get it right in literature, you get to live it, kind of. Yeah. No, I was. I was very interested in that. I mean, what really interested me about the period, I think, were many things. But the main one was that the... the the, tum the rules governing female behavior were very different then, but they were somewhat unenforceable during the war because there were all kinds of ideas about what women could and couldn't do, but the bottom line was they, they need the, their labor was needed desperately. Yep. So, um, you know, there, so that created a lot of um, kind of dramatic possibilities. Um, the combination of rules that no longer exist but opportunities that, that were in opposition to those rules was really interesting. And it wasn't just for women, but also people of color. Um, so, and then, um, so that, there were just so many things about the period that made it kind of fascinating. Um, and so it, it felt dramatically very rich. Yeah, the Second World War, unfortunately, sort of the birth of the modernism, so much changed. Um, mm. Well, some would say it was the First World War, really. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I think it, certainly they were huge, you know, cataclysmic events. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm actually, I'm very interested in, in the 19th century now, or the sort of pre-First World War um, Europe and America. So that's, that's the next area. If I, if I attempt another historical novel, I think that's where I would go. Okay. Um, it, 
It drags me back to violence, which you did touch on. You know, we're sort of inherently violent species, I suppose, and whether we like it or not, we're all beneficiaries sometimes of historical violence, a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. It's an unrelenting part of life, and how does that inform your fiction? I mean, I know there's a lot of violence and speedboats seem to be <laughs> recur, but violence is a, a really, you know, it's an awful thing when you're... Um, either dishing it out or receiving it if it's actual. And to go back through history to reveal it is a pretty ugly thing. So Yeah, I mean I talk, wasn't talk me through that. I wasn't thinking about violence per se. I was um, I guess in some ways that was suggested by my research. One thing that was really helpful about doing this research before I was even close to writing was that I think I had a lot of time to let some of these um, things that I heard more than once, sort of certain resonances and anecdotes, they had a long time to gestate in my mind before I actually started writing. And one whole strain of, um, of conversation or a, sort of a thread that ran through a lot of my conversations was how many people had contact with organized crime um, in the war years and before. And that was really striking because that's just not something that is gen- generally true of, of your average, you know, New Yorker nowadays. Um, and what I, and so that led to a whole segment of research into prohibition and its aftermath because alcohol was illegal in America from 1919 to 1933. That's a long time. <laughs> and so in that time, um, you know, I mean, it was much harder to get alcohol, but many people still wanted to drink, and especially the sort of, um, you know, the kind of moneyed, well-heeled mainstream society wanted to drink and, and did drink. And the organized crime as we know it really became organized in that period to manage the liquor business, because now it was just kind of there for the taking. And so, so there were, criminal life was integrated into mainstream life in a way that is, is very odd for us to think of now. And that, in a way, sort of opened a door for me to, to think about all of that. And of course, there was you know, tons of corruption in, in American city life, let's say New York. I mean, there was Tammany Hall at an earlier point, which was a lot of very Irish-American um, kind of co- organized corruption. Um, the robber barons were ruthless and and absolutely plundered. Waterfront um, as well, I suppose. The waterfront was, was rife with pilfering because before container shipping, Basically, every every ship had to be loaded and unloaded, and every single one of those loadings and unloadings product disappeared. So the the, the criminal world was deeply involved in all that. Um, and in fact, the movie on the waterfront is drawn directly from a series of uh, nonfiction article newspaper articles exposing the corruption on the Irish waterfront. Oh, is it? I didn't yeah, know that. right. that's good. absolutely nonfiction. Um, so anyway, that was all, you know, we, I mean, the other thing is, you know, my, my father's side of the family was very clannishly Irish American. They, they were from Chicago and, uh, my grandfather was a cop who became a police commander and he was also, uh, President Truman's bodyguard whenever he would come to Chicago. So I have fantastic pictures of my grandfather who was quite a clothes horse, I have to say, 
um, in his Ford fedora um, with his partner laughing like crazy with President Truman. It seems like they had a ball. And in oh, fact, wow. there are stories of them ducking out of official events and, you know, heading over to the nearest bar to have fun. Um, so, you know, I think I grew up listening to and talk about a corrupt city, Chicago, Illinois. You don't get a lot more corrupt than Chicago. So um, I think there was a lot, of, I had a lot of curiosity about that, even even originating in my own, my yeah. own life. The, the, and the legitimizing through alcohol was extreme in that period, wasn't it? Yes. Gangsters hosted politicians or... Absolutely. And gangster elite. was like a job <clears throat> title. I mean, and, and again, I came upon this almost anecdotally first. So, for example, there was one um, very elderly New Yorker who had an excellent memory, a Jewish gentleman who was from a wealthy Jewish family. They lived in an apartment on Central Park, and he was telling me about some of the other famous people who lived in their apartment building, and it was like a movie star and a, you know, this and that, and, and Frank Costello, the crime boss, a major crime boss in New York. He was just their neighbor. They, you know... That, I mean, that was so hard for me to understand. It doesn't work in a contemporary setting, really, does it? Exactly. So it's, can you imagine trying to get through the co-op board? Well, yes, I'm a crime boss. Uh, and so that, I started reading more about some of these gangsters, as they were known. And, and it was interesting. A lot of them did mistake this proximity with legitimate society for a kind of legitimacy themselves which they didn't have and never could really get. And that seemed very poignant to me. So a lot of the things that ended up happening in the plot, I think, were suggested long before by some of the research that I was doing. And and in that way, I think having that sort of long span um, and, and a sort of gap between those conversations and the time that I started writing really helped me in terms of informing my plot in a kind of deep way. Yeah, I guess a lot of it you don't you only hint at, but it gives it that realism. You're not writing about prohibition and what happened and the colliery of it, but it's it's underneath, isn't it? Very much so. And actually there was another phase that um that I learned about which was I mean there were there was a kind of hangover after prohibition when the gangsters were still you know, they were folded into mainstream life to some degree because of their um, management of the liquor business. But what happened from the gangsters' side was that they they lost a huge income stream when the government, you know, legalized booze again. And they had to find a way to uh, supplement that. And so that is really when they started to get into activities that were much more unsavory, like dealing hard drugs, you know, prostitution rings. And it's also when uh, the the level of violence became much more severe among organized crime. So that that's sort of the moment that I'm looking at. And that was also kind of interesting. It's, it's when, um, at least according to one really fascinating book that I read, when a, a kind of fissure occurred between the Irish gangsters and the Italian, or the Irish-American gangsters and the Italian-American gangsters. What, what was the fissure? What's the... the fissure was apparently, some of it was that the Irish-Americans were very prudish, for one thing. They did not approve of and any they involvement. They didn't do prostitution. They didn't do prostitution. 
And the Italian-Americans were like, well, what's the problem? Um, so there were basically cultural differences that, that, um, that began to arise um, and, and ultimately created a... Uh, I mean, there was a lot of fascinating overlap between the Irish-Americans and the Italian-Americans. For example, Al Capone, one of the most bloody gangsters uh, that I think we've ever seen, who was from Chicago, he married an Irish girl from Brooklyn. Mrs. Capone was Irish-American. Right. Was um, that a business decision? I don't think so, but there was a lot of like there were there were a lot of stories of Italian guys changing their names to O'Brien, and and then Irish American guys changing their names to you know Volpone um, to try to, to blend in properly. exactly. Yeah, okay. So there's there's more to be done. I have to say dramatically with all that. I mean, I could only get into it a bit because I've got a very complicated story involving a lot of people, but it was pretty fascinating. Yeah, what do you like to read? What are your influences? Oh boy. Um, I mean, it's always hard to say what I, I can say what I hope has influenced well, me. Well, what have you liked? Um, yeah. I mean, I, let's see, I guess some, some kind of pole stars for me are um, Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth. That's really, I think that's really just one of my favorite novels. I can't say that it's one of the best novels. I don't know. I, I feel so personally about it. Um, Moby Dick was a book I revisited for Manhattan Beach and what I just adored. In fact, okay. the whole literature of the sea, which I had never been very interested in, but uh, my interest awoke as in the course of writing this book, I just loved. I mean, even like people like Patrick O'Brien, that series. I mean, those are that's Commander, yeah. like catnip. I couldn't stop reading those, and I kept thinking, this is not even your period. I mean, you got to let this go. These guys are sailing. You're 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 on a liberty ship. Come on. Um, so that I loved all of that. Um, they have, they have a thriller aspect to them, or you know, page turner. I very love much. crime fiction and page turners and science fiction that yes. keeps me reading. So when I'm not bogged down in something, I can get through a book. Mm -hmm. I think they have a great place in a, yeah, absolutely. on our shelves. Well, I, one thing I, I mean, one of the questions I had in working on this book is, was, can I fuse these two very unlike genres? The, the noir, which is basically what I, a very urban genre in detective fiction and movies that I, I use as a kind of lens through which to write about New York during the war, and then sea stories, you know, survival at sea. And they, they seem to have really nothing in common. I thought it's going to be really weird to try to have both of those in one book, although Alfred Hitchcock did make a movie called Lifeboat. Um, but what I found was that actually the two genres have an enormous amount in common. It, it, the, the difference is really just atmospheric, because in both cases you have you have a small collection of human beings surrounded by an existential threat. It's familiar, isn't it? So. Yeah, I mean, in, in the noir, it's the sort of ur the un urban unknown, the kind of shadowy urban world of that's, you know, alienated. Um, and then in sea stories, it's obviously the sea. And even when sea, sea survival is not really the issue, it's always the issue. It's always on the table um, because it's a hostile environment. So... Um, so that was kind of funny. I, I realized that as I was working that I was drawn to that sort of structure, um, but one is completely the natural world and the other is is the very nature of the dread is its distance from the natural world. Okay. Thank you very much for talking to us. 
Well, thank you for yeah. having me. It had nothing to do with my notes. I was just <laughs> listening to what you had to say and trying to bounce off that. So that was terrific. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, we'll see you next time. Absolutely. We'll go to Egan's town. <laughs>